Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. C D T. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wazalowski, and it's time to talk tech. If you want to silence an advocacy group or a media outlet, a fairly easy way to do so is to take down their website. Two organizations, Cloudflare and Google, are doing great work to help nonprofits and journalists, as well as election officials, protect themselves against cyber attacks. We'll talk about their efforts and share how you can take advantage of their free services. After that, we talked to Laura Noreen, a data scientist who was recently with NYU teaching a class on data ethics. What do data scientists need to know to create technology that is actually better for society as a whole? Cloudflare and Google are both doing a ton to help nonprofits defend themselves against a range of online attacks. One of the most common attacks is a distributed denial of service attack, or DDoS. And through Cloudflare's Galileo and Google Jigsaw's Project Shield, nonprofits receive free support to fend off would be attackers to keep their websites live. Joining me to talk about their efforts are Alyssa Starzak from Cloudflare and George Connard from Google. Welcome, Alyssa and George. Thank you. Great to have you here. So first, tell me, you know, for folks that don't know, and frankly me, what a DDoS attack is, what exactly is it? How common are they? Make this understandable for us. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'll I'll start with this one. Um, So a, a DDoS attack is a way to try to stop other people from accessing a website. Uh, And we can get into the technical details of it, but one of the ways that I like to describe DDoS attacks is by using an analogy. So, you know, imagine if you have kids, um, imagine that you have a a child who's about to turn nine years old, and you're going to have a birthday party for for them and maybe eight or ten of their friends. That sounds like my nightmare, George. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's going to get worse. Okay. who doesn't like you, you know, not that they don't like your kid, everybody likes your kid, but of course. someone who doesn't like you finds out about this. And, um, and I'm based in, in New York and I'm sitting in Manhattan, so I kind of you know, think about it in these terms. You know, imagine that they post flyers all over Manhattan saying on this night, on Thursday night at seven o'clock, uh, there's gonna be free cake at your address. And they nice. post your address on that. And so the day of the party comes and your, your child's friends are trying to get to the party, but they can't even get through the streets because the streets are completely clogged with traffic. The sidewalks are full of pedestrians trying to get to the free cake. And even if they make it to your house or your apartment, they can't get through the door um, because it's, it's just full of so many different people trying to get there. And then imagine even if they did get through the door that, well, the person serving the cake has had a complete meltdown and is lying under the table and there's no cake left <laughs> and nobody's actually throwing the cake. Um, that's essentially what a DDoS attack is doing to a website. It's sending so much internet traffic toward a site that either it clogs the internet connection to that site so no one else can get to it, or it causes the server itself to just stop responding because it can't handle the, the entire traffic load. Wow, and no one gets cake. Uh, <laughs> no, that's a great analogy. How common are these attacks, and, and who are the kind of victims or targets of these? So one of the things we talk about a lot is actually that they're relatively easy. So uh, it's not that hard to launch a DDoS attack. So if you have someone who doesn't like you, uh, it's not that hard to launch a DDoS attack. Yeah. So they are relatively common. 
And I'm guessing there's a range of reasons that someone might not like you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's certainly true. Yeah, and a lot of nonprofits certainly working on, you know, difficult issues or issues that are contentious, I would imagine, you know, are a target. Do you have any examples of kind of nonprofits that you've worked with who, who have been targeted? So I can talk a little bit about how we started our program. Sure. So, um, so our project Galileo uh, actually started in 2014 um, after our CEO noticed uh, that an entity that was on our free plan, we have a we have a range of different options yep. from a business perspective. One of them is a free plan. Um, one, uh, one of the the company the entities that was on our free plan that got a significant DDoS attack was a uh, a journalism uh, site, a media site mm. uh, in Ukraine. Uh, and the concern, obviously, um, as George alluded to, um, when you have your child melting down into the table because no one's getting cake, the same thing if you have a media site that's not active, uh, people aren't getting news. Aren't getting the information. Yeah, that's, that's right. important. Um, so tell me, let's, this might be a good time to kind of pivot to your specific projects. You went to it a bit. So uh, Cloudflare's Galileo, Google's Project Shield. Tell me a bit about what, I know they're similar but different. So maybe, uh, George, why don't you go first? And then Alyssa, tell me a bit more about um, Galileo. So George, tell me about Project Shield. Sure. Um, and, and, and I'll start with just very briefly kind of who we are at Jigsaw, uh, yeah. because that's, you know, a part of the story. So Jigsaw is a, um, an organization within Alphabet, which is Google's parent company. We're very closely connected with Google, of course. And, and we're a team of uh, engineers and product managers, researchers, policy experts looking for ways that we can use technology to make people safer. Uh, and the, you know, Project Shield is something that Going back to 2012, we had an engineer who was uh, in a country that had an election in that year and, and working with their electoral board and found out that they, they were suffering from DDoS attacks. Um, and as Alyssa alluded to, you know, launching DDoS attacks have gotten easier and easier over the years um, and cheaper and cheaper too. So you don't have to be a technical person to launch one. You can go out on the internet and if you know where to look, you can find somebody who will launch an attack on your behalf for under $5. Whoa, under $5? Yeah, Don't get any ideas. Yeah, no, <laughs> I have no ideas. <laughs> I love everyone. <laughs> um, so we, we started experimenting with ways that we might be able to put Google's infrastructure and Google's defenses, um, which we've, of course, built over the years as, as Google has been a target of DDoS attacks, to use uh, to protect people who wouldn't otherwise be able to defend themselves. Either they didn't have the technical or financial resources to be able to do that. Uh, and so Project Shield grew out of kind of some experiments that we did in that space um, and has, has grown to be what it is today, uh, where we are uh, a free service that will offer protection to journalists and news organizations, human rights organizations, uh, and elections and electoral uh, sites around the world, um, as, as well as we do some work in the in the political space, depending on the country uh, that we're in. We can talk a little bit more about that later. Yeah. Um, but you know, the the your your question about kind of how um, how this impacts people. I think Alyssa said it very well that you know so many times you have information that someone is publishing, uh, you know, whether they're whether they're a rights organization or they're a journalist or, or whomever. And the moment when they are ready to publish something that might be controversial or that someone might not like um, is probably the moment that their readers need them the most. And so making sure that they're able to stay up and stay up under attack, even if someone's trying to silence that voice, uh, we think is very important. We have a mandate from the from the company to look at ways to defend free expression and, and keep people safe. And so it fits fits very well into, into kind of what we're doing. Um, and you had asked earlier as well about kind of why 
uh, I, I think we started doing this, and the you know the truth is that it, for for us it's a two part problem. One is that core mandate that we have to use tech to to keep people safer. Um, that's just what our job is at Jigsaw. But beyond that, we think and and have had lots of conversations with others in the industry, and including Alyssa and others at Cloudflare, that you know DDoS is just bad for the internet, um, and that makes it bad for business, and it makes it bad for everybody. So the more that we can all do to work together to to stop these kinds of attacks, I think the better we all are. That's great. So Alyssa, I'd love to hear even more about Galileo and what you're doing at Cloudflare. Yeah, I, I want to just uh, say I agree with everything George said uh, on, on exactly those issues. You know, I, Cloudflare was launched in 2011 um, along some of those same lines. So our mission as a company is to help build a better internet. Uh, and we actually launched in part with a free service uh, because what we saw at the time was uh, was different types of service for different kinds of entities. So big businesses that could pay for a lot of uh, different services uh, were protected from DDoS attacks. Uh, they had fast service. Um, that was not true for small blogs, um, for small internet sites. Um, and, and our sense was that that wasn't right from an internet perspective. Uh, and Project Galileo actually grew out of those same ideals. So the notion that uh, somebody could be wiped off the internet just because they couldn't afford to pay, uh, particularly when those voices were particularly valuable. So um, voices that are talking about human rights, uh, that are talking about uh, that are reporting on things from a, from mm -hmm. a uh, that are nonprofits that are that are helping people. All of those things are really important voices, and our sense was that the, that is one of the things that the internet has done. It's empowered those types of voices, uh, and it was really important to make sure that that stayed the case. Uh, so, in the reason we launched in 2014, as I mentioned, was about this Ukrainian news site, or that's that was the origin of it. Um, but at the time, uh, we weren't able to protect on a, on a free plan everyone from every every size DDoS attack. So we mm -hmm. could protect some uh, a DDoS attack at the time. Um, it, it wasn't across the board for our free plan. We've actually changed our our plan over time as we've gotten bigger. Um, now we actually provide free service uh, DDoS uh, protection services. So for everybody who signs up for our free plan. Um, Project Galileo adds something onto that too, though. Um, it protects from additional cyber attacks. So okay. um, we have a web application firewall that goes into effect for our, our people who are part of Project Galileo, um, which helps them protect against uh, some common vulnerabilities on the cyber side. Yeah, I think CDT actually benefits from that. I've interacted with firewall a bit yes. as we've been posting <laughs> yeah. to our website on different things. <laughs> what so are you thank posting? You. <laughs> you know, it's usually when I'm remote, and then we have a great person who's like, this is, this is for our own good that you're having trouble posting. So <laughs> it all gets resolved, and it's beautiful at the end of it. So those are fantastic projects. Um, George, you also mentioned a bit that you do some work on elections, and I know that you've worked in... Uh, all of a you know, also kind of, you know, contentious countries where there's democracy may be at risk. What are some of the things you do around like elections and information and election security? So the, the as I said before, the, you know, kind of the origin of, of S.H.I.E.L.D. actually was in talking to a, a, an electoral commission um, in, a, in, a, in a different country. And so it's something that's been on our radar for, for quite some time. And we see a lot of times you know, digital attacks can correlate to conflict in the real world. And as we see elections become more and more uh, contentious in different places around the world, including here in the U.S., um, and we see the capability of different actors, whether they're individuals, you know, all the way up to governments, have more capacity to, to launch digital attacks. 
you know, that correlation is just strengthening over time. Um, and so, we, you know, we've been working to protect electoral commissions, elections monitoring sites, and mm. others like that mm-hmm. since, the, since the beginning of SHIELD. Um, and we've done that in a number of different countries around different elections. Um, we, we, we've done two things in the last year to kind of go a little bit further on that front. So one is that last year, Jigsaw uh, launched something called Protect Your Election. Um, and that's a it's, a, it's a website, and we can we can get the link for this, you know, out to, to your listeners or out in the, sure. uh, on the website when it gets published. Protect Your Election really brings together a number of different tools that both Google and Jigsaw have built over the years to help people be safer during times of elections. So that includes things like Project Shield. Um, it includes things like two-factor authentication to help protect, uh, you know, your accounts and your email accounts and things like that. Um, as well as uh, for those that need it, Google's Advanced Protection Program, uh, which is kind of Google's highest level of security for individual accounts. Uh, for people who are, you know, maybe highly likely to be to be targeted, uh, and so we've we've brought all that together and have done a lot of work to help educate people about what those different threats are. Um, from a Project Shield perspective, one of the things that we've seen is that during the time of an election, you know, the information that's important to voters is partially the elections boards or, or electoral commissions or, or whoever is running the election. Where do I go to vote? When is the vote happening? What's on the ballot? Things like that. Um, but also, what you know, the information from campaigns is, is important, too. You want to be sure. able to understand uh, the point of view of the different candidates to make an informed decision. And we've seen certainly in the U.S., both uh, over the last several months and even just a couple earlier this week were reported DDoS attacks targeting county election boards, um, you know, are often much smaller uh, and may not have uh, as many technical resources, as well as even small local campaigns. Um, uh, those were the two that were, were announced this, uh, or reported on this week. And so we've, we've, we've started also offering protection to political organizations, um, not just the elections boards themselves or electri- election monitoring sites, but campaigns, candidates, um, you know, committees, things along those lines. We're doing that on a, on a country-by-country basis, so we announced support for that in the U.S. Uh, a couple of months ago, um, and then we'll be rolling it out to other countries as we navigate the various kind of local laws and regulations about what's possible and what's not. Cool. Lisa, did you want to share anything about Cloudflare's work? So we're, we also launched a project called uh, the Athenian Project uh, that's specifically focused on U.S. elections, um, and it's specifically related to state and local governments. Uh, you know, our sense was that what we were talking about right now in the U.S. is really about the integrity of elections, and George alluded to this too. You know, uh, what, one of the big concerns right now is we people don't we want make we want to make sure that people trust that the the, the election itself is fair and that the, the reality of an impact of a DDoS attack if a website goes down on the night that 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 things are being reported uh, that results are being reported mm-hmm. there's a lot of concern that people aren't going to trust what's actually happening even if everything is absolutely fair it's going to look questionable and and we because we can prevent that, because it's our core business to prevent that, uh, our sense was that we should make sure that the entities, that the government entities that didn't have as many resources should actually have the resources to do it, that that was a really important thing. So I, I would echo George's comments on that. It's a, it's incredibly important that people have faith in their, in their systems, Absolutely. and some of that is making sure that websites are protected. You know, I think one of the things that often hap- happens in the election space is that people focus on the election results specific, or on the election voting specifically, the voting machines, um, sure. any vul- vulnerabilities there, and they don't think about the perception issues. And I think that's a space that, that, that we can play in and we can play quietly behind the scenes that, that Jigsaw can play in as well. Um, and we can just help 
reinforce uh, that these are things that just work. Yeah, well, you all are doing amazing work. How can either a nonprofit, a journalist, an election, election official get in touch with any of you? What's the best way if they want to take advantage of Jigsaw or um, Cloudflare's great services? Go ahead, George. So for yes, yeah, so for for Jigsaw and Project Shield, Project Shield itself, you can find at uh, g.co/shield. Um, or go to jigsaw.google.com, uh, which has information on all the different projects that we have uh, at Jigsaw and, and links from there to, uh, to Project Shield. And the Shield site has a bunch of information about who's eligible, uh, how the service works, a link to off to our help center to, to try to help people understand what they're doing as well as how to get in touch with us uh, more directly. And Alyssa, how about Project Galileo? So we have a couple different ways that you can get in touch with us. You can apply directly on our website to Project Galileo, which is just at cloudflare.com slash Galileo. Uh, we also, uh, the way we actually work under Project Galileo, because we're an infrastructure company, and we don't deal, we don't want to be in the business of assessing whether particular organizations are worthy of our services or not, we actually partner with a bunch of very respected nonprofits, like the Center for Democracy and Technology. Thank you. <laughs> uh, to actually bring people our way. Um, and so if, if people are, if they identify organizations that they think are in need of services, we will protect them under Project Galileo. And what we actually typically do uh, when we get a request on our website, um, we will actually ask any of our sponsors if they're willing to, to sponsor it, or partners, or if they're willing to sponsor, sponsor the, uh, the organization. Great. So there well, are multiple ways. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. We'll make sure all of that is on the CDT website when we post about this one. Uh, and also every place that you can find Tech Talk. Alyssa and George, thank you so much for joining. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, it was great. Build it first and ask for forgiveness later. The tech mantra, or at least it has been, but that might be changing. As data and technology become increasingly integrated into every aspect of our lives, the potential real harms to each of us becomes more apparent whether we are thinking about connected cars or automated decisions on employment. This has led to ethics coming up in far more conversations about data and tech. And as our guest today says, you can patch software, but you can't really patch a person. Laura Noreen was recently a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Data Science at New York University and taught a class on data science ethics at NYU. She joins us to talk about that course and why ethics matter in tech. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much. So let's start very top level. How important is it to factor ethics into technology, into the technology we create, especially when it's a data-driven technology? I think it's absolutely critically important. And I think one of the big differences about uh, the, the data-saturated world that we're living in is that we have the capacity now to represent an entire human life in more exquisite detail and more completeness than we've ever had in the past. And this is something that we haven't, you know, the conversation is typically not framed in that way, mm -hmm. but when you realize the, the depth that we, can, that we can understand humans to, there's a huge amount of, of potential there, of potential benefit, social benefit, individual benefit, and then there's also kind of a great big dark side of things that can go wrong. And then things that go wrong typically don't go wrong for everyone. They go wrong for relatively small groups of people. So uh, we, as technologists, really have a responsibility to look out for, you know, the the 1% or 2% or 5% of, of our populations that aren't quite fitting the model. 
So I think that's that's where I like to start the conversation with with technologists in particular because they're so used to thinking about things in terms of an accurate, you know, let's move on with it, or this is ninety five percent accurate, we're good to run. Yeah, really, and, we need to think about that 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 extra one percent or five percent or whatever it is that small group. And when we're talking about the one percent, you know, here or the five percent, we're certainly not talking about the elite one percent. Typically, what who kind of tends to make up the groups that are, you know affected more so by, you know, false assumptions or things being 95% correct? Unsurprisingly, it's typically groups that have been historically underrepresented in public life. So whatever that, you know, it varies from population to population. But um, one of the examples that, that is particularly illuminating that I like to use is the, the example of self-driving cars. Probably self-driving cars are a net benefit to society because it turns out that humans are, at least Americans, are pretty bad drivers. <laughs> I've been other places too, and there's some bad drivers worldwide. <laughs> yeah, we, we, uh, we're not very good at it, and so we have lots of fatalities, 40,000 plus per year in the United States, and that's increasing even though we continue to build cars with more and more kind of safety features. We just get more and more distracted, or I'm not exactly sure what the cause of our poor driving is, but it doesn't really matter. It exists. We're bad at yeah. it, and we're not getting any better at it. Um, so probably self-driving cars are a net benefit. That's, that's actually a good thing. We should pursue this technology. But the, the question becomes, well, when do we start putting these cars on the road? And the problem that, that Uber just had, and also the problem that Tesla had earlier, both of those companies were involved in accidents that proved fatal um, either for a driver in the case of Tesla or for a pedestrian in the case of Uber were obvious um, types of problems that you could have predicted you might have with image recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was uh, basically an overexposure problem. There was too much light coming into the sensors and they really couldn't figure out that there was a semi-truck. <laughs> <laughs> pretty obvious that that would be there, but um, it was a white semi-truck and the angle of the sun just made it very difficult for the sensors to detect, so the car ran straight into the oh semi-truck. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, so that was the Tesla case, and that was several years ago. I think it's fallen out of public discourse. Um, but that's how that happened, and that's a pretty predictable image recognition problem. And that's a 99%, 1% issue. When your technology is 95% accurate, it's going to see that semi-truck 95% of the time, but then 5% of the time it doesn't. And that's, you know, that, that to me is... doesn't a, seem like great odds, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know what the exact percentages are, but that's typically how, you know, data science works. Yep. You're never going to get something that's 100% accurate. And so your question then is, well, where do we draw the threshold where it's safe enough to put this thing out, put this technology out on the road? Um, typically, what we do in data science is we just compare to well, is it better than what baseline is now? If we put these self-driving cars on the road, are they going to be safer than typical humans driving? And of course, humans probably aren't necessarily going to make that particular mistake driving straight into a semi, although there was a man in the car at the time and he didn't react at all. Apparently he was reading Harry Potter, which is very (laughs) engrossing. It is, absolutely. uh, It's very engrossing. So... Um, but in the Uber case, they had kind of an equally predictable but other end of the spectrum problem where that they their sensors were unable to detect this pedestrian in very low light conditions. Oh, that's not true. The sensors detected the pedestrian in low light conditions. They just couldn't tell what it was. 
mm. that they detected, so they decided it wasn't really worth slowing down for. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so that's an example. Those are typical, like, you know, a lot of times we might look at image recognition and say, well, it's particularly bad at detecting um, features in darker-skinned people. That's true. Um, that is, And that's been true for a long time. If you look back at the history of um, film photography, we didn't have films that were capable, like the, the actual film itself, that was capable of getting good white balance simultaneously for light-skinned people and for dark-skinned people in the same, you know, in the same image. Mm -hmm. So if you are a very white-skinned person, light-skinned person who has very dark-skinned friends, you would almost never be able to get a good photo of both of you at the same time. So there's been some ethnographic research on, well, how, how did the early, not, not today's, but pre-digital, you know, camera people deal with this, and they just, they wouldn't, they wouldn't ever have. <laughs> they wouldn't photograph yeah. people together? Oh, my goodness. They would not do that. Or so, like, if, um, you know, David Letterman interviews Whoopi Goldberg or something like that, they would have a whole camera set up and a whole white balance um, oh, wow. going on for him and a whole completely different setup with different lighting for her. Oh, wow. So I we, did not realize that. Yeah, we knew this was a problem, but we didn't force it back to Kodak and say, all right, Kodak, um, please fix. Fujifilm actually paid a little bit more attention to it because um, they had they had slightly different populations using their film. But when we but so so tech ethics isn't some like impossible difficult thing. We actually have a fairly deep history, and a lot of these technologies suggest we're gonna like where we're going to have problems. Um, Fascinating. So let's and talk. We, we haven't always. We're, as technologists, we, typically, we aren't always the best at knowing our history. <laughs> so tell me a bit. Let's go to that, you know, kind of the course that you were teaching when you were with NYU, and you've now moved on to Obsidian Security, and we'll get to that in a bit. But at NYU, the, the course on data science ethics, what did your syllabus include? You know, what were some of the recommended readings that uh, perhaps I would like to read? <laughs> sure. Well, we started with um, moral philosophy. We do have... You know some pretty deep theoretical precepts out there that kind of help pe help understand well you know what are the appropriate trade-offs if you if you know your technology is never going to be perfect does that mean you're just paralyzed and you can't actually do anything because you can never achieve perfection therefore you can never release it uh, no that's probably not going to provide the, the most benefit to society but how do you figure out you know what kinds of technologies we should pursue when, when it's appropriate to kind of start testing them in places where they could cause harm or could cause benefit. Mm -hmm. um, and so we start with something like uh, the fairness principles that John Rawls talked about. Um, and I think that's pretty important for technologists. So he, he had this experiment, it's a thought experiment that he liked to run to, to determine how do you set the rules that should govern a group of people. And he said, well, obviously this is not possible to do, but if you could imagine um, like a, a proto-human being, sort of like a baby who's never had any experience before, but even more proto than that, who's sort of has no, has no history. Okay, like a new Furby out of the box. <laughs> yeah, it's capable of thinking like an adult, but has no history. 
and they are and they are blind to their own circumstance. We know that even babies aren't born into a blank slate, right? They're born to particular kinds of parents who live in a particular city and in a particular mm-hmm. um, time and place. So we know that that already you're going to come in with a set of um, privileges and, and affordances that other people may not have, or vice versa. So, but if you could imagine that you don't know where you're going to be. You don't know who your parents are going to be. You don't know which city you're talking about, which kind of, you know, what's the contemporary religion that mm-hmm. dominates in this area. You don't know anything, but you have to set rules. That's how you should think about, um, you should imagine that you could you could end up being, uh, you know, the pedestrian who's out there on the street or the Uber, yeah. you know, the driver of this car or someone who is neither a pedestrian nor a driver, but just, you know, happens to be, alive in society and is concerned about, I don't know, parking or, you know, other kinds of things that, that cars deal with. And if you can come up with a solution that is fair for everyone, but also is specifically not disadvantaging people who are already the most disadvantaged. So in this case, you would say, all right, we have to reorient our thinking to be most concerned about pedestrians who are not very good at um, obeying traffic signals. They're probably the most disadvantaged, right? They're the most likely to have problems. We need to make sure that our system doesn't disadvantage them even more than they're already disadvantaged. So I would say Uber failed that test because they weren't really able to look out for that woman who was crossing the street outside of an intersection in in a poorly lit, you know, time and place. So they failed that test. So we start with things like that because they actually... Um, tend to be applicable across a whole bunch of different kinds of technological settings. Mm -hmm. And the thing about tech is it's innovative. It's always doing something different. That's the definition of what these technological fields do. So regulations are probably never going to be all that helpful um, in figuring out how you should build the next new thing. They're going to provide some some bumpers, but they're not going to tell you, like, when do you put this new technology out on the road? Because yeah. regulation is always reactionary. It comes after the fact. Yeah. So I try to, I tried to give my students some, you know, some capacity to have an ethical imagination so they could think about um, what they should bring to the table. What kind of history do you need to have before you, you know, start developing technologies in a field that isn't really your domain. Your domain is computer science. You may not know that much about like the history of film photography. But why should you, frankly? But you might be able to start asking yourself questions that lead you to look into those kinds of domains or collaborate with someone who knows better about those domains. So that's always, it's always a strength. Uh, you'll learn a lot, even if it turns out not to have that much to do with ethics. Um, and you'll also get some idea about how to make decisions about what to build, when to release it, how much testing to do before you move on to the next, um, you know, part in the product development cycle. That's great. We also talked about, you know, like how much we read an article that kind of stuck with me, which is how much, how much activity does, does a person's say Facebook account need to have before Facebook can start predicting things about them, (laughs) their gender, their race, their age, whether they're, homosexual or heterosexual and what kind of data is really the most telling and that was a pretty interesting article because they really Facebook doesn't really need to have that much activity from any given user because their background you know their base their database of, of all people is so huge that just a few things can sometimes be extremely telling and the few activities might be something as silly as 
saying that you like a Britney Spears album. She's not exactly releasing new material right now, so... <laughs> oh, if only we were that lucky, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that's actually more... Like, if you if they've predicted that you're, say, a man, and that you're liking Britney, and they can see that you're liking Britney Spears, that's more indicative of your um, sexual orientation than whether or not you, I don't know, changed your profile picture to a rainbow flag after DOMA. Because lots and lots of people did that. So it turned out the political statements about sexual orientation were not very revealing. But the kind of the cultural stuff, the things that people are like, oh, I don't really care if Facebook knows that I like Britney Spears or that I, you know, commented on this picture from my local Mm -hmm. coffee store. Actually, those things turn out to be particularly revealing. That's fascinating. Well, who were the type of folks that took the course? Was it a, a cross of, you know, data scientists, but also people from different disciplines, or who 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 was there? Because it seems like a lot of people should be taking this. <laughs> Absolutely, I think so. Um, <laughs> but in fact, it was it was all of my students were extremely courageous because this was not a required course ah, at the time. An elective. Uh, it was an elective, and so this was this was a group of people who. Was, were capable of saying to themselves, gee, I maybe don't know everything about the world, and I'd like to be able to, you know, move sensitively through this world and build things that don't hurt other people or that, you know, bring the best benefit. So it was a range of people who come from more of a liberal arts background, uh, media studies folks, um, sociology people. Um, We had someone there who really wanted to take the course but couldn't because it, it didn't fit her requirements. So she came out of um, like a nutritional counseling background. How interesting. So you know, data in sat- is saturating so many different fields that really the, the, the population for this course could touch on pretty much anyone who's planning on having a career. Um, but the, and then there was also kind of a core group of people who are data scientists and who are aware uh, of the power that they have and aren't quite sure how to assess whether they're using it for good. They care. But just because you care doesn't mean it's always straightforward what, right. what should be done next. So now we're seeing a bit of, you know, for lack of a better word, tech lash. It's a term that our president's starting to use and other folks are. Mm-hmm. So kind of anti-tech a bit. Do you think ethics, and now that you're kind of in the private sector with Obsidian Security, you probably have a different perspective on this as well, and you don't have to comment on them. But do you think that ethics and kind of, you know, this upfront thinking through ethics might be a way to turn the tide back towards, you know, pro-innovation and pro-tech? Um, well, if I were rebranding things, I'd probably call it, you know, human-centered design or human-centered innovation. And that, you know, some some companies have, have always been, you know, thinking deeply about how they'd like to impact humans, all humans, not just sort of, I feel like a lot of the apps that we have these days are basically about instant and complete gratification. Let me push a button and a car shows up to bring me somewhere. Let me push a button and I get all of the music I like and none of the music I don't like. It's 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 an, let me get, you know, DoorDash or Seamless to show up with the food I like quickly. So we've, we've created kind of, we've, we've been through an instant gratification moment, and I'm hoping that the next moment is a little bit broader than that, because those technologies really don't benefit everyone. Yeah. They benefit the button pusher a lot more than the person who's driving the car or delivering the food or 
uh, the artists who make those produce those songs. Yeah, so we've kind of we've, we've we've tipped we've tipped in a direction that does really require some deeper thinking about what kinds of technologies we want to build and what kinds of society we want to live in. Well, I hope all your students or your former students are going to do that. Um, we're almost out of time, but before I let you go, I'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of your prior work before you got into um, this area. You are actually the co-editor of a book, Toilet, Public Restrooms and the Politics of Sharing, and you've done a lot of research on workspace and technology. Can you give us like a quick, you know, 30 seconds or one minute, you know, what, you, what you've been doing there? Because I think it's fascinating. Well, it turns out the politics of sharing really applies to data sharing, too. Mm. The, the, the problems that people have in the bathroom, they're essentially doing something very private in a kind of semi-public space. And that's really not that different than, than data sharing. It's very private data that's out in semi-public spaces, and the, the tensions and the concerns are very, very similar. It's about fascinating. Hiding. Like, am I going to get germs? Am I going to get diseases, viruses? Um, what, what to do about the other to share spaces and, and, and what to do about our own um, dirtiness, if I can, messiness. <laughs> you know, those things our that online are, messiness. Google. Yeah. yeah. A lot of cleaning up to do. Well, Laura, it has been a joy <laughs> chatting with you. I've learned so much. Thank you for joining Tech Talk. We'll have to have you on again. And will you give us a few links that we can put with the podcast for our listeners to, uh, to learn from your course? Sure, I can send you the whole show that you wish. All right, awesome. Well, we will put those on our Tech Talk blog post and wherever we post it, which our producer knows more so than I do. Laura, thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Tech Talk. Be sure to take a look at Laura's syllabus for her data ethics class, which is available in the blog post for this podcast at cdt.org. You'll also find the links there for the free services from Cloudflare and Google. I'm Brian Wozlowski. Thanks so much for listening.